Welcome to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, a podcast about geek culture by lawyers, with your hosts, Ben Siders and Kirk Damon. Today's episode is sponsored by the Wakanda Bureau of Vital Records, where your vibranium tattoo is not just lip service, it's your ticket home. And welcome back to A Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, episode 28, with your host, Ben Siders, that's me, and the other guy is Kirk Damon. That's Kirk, as in the captain of the Enterprise. Today's topic is body art. The genesis for the subject is uh, a recent lawsuit involving the video game NBA 2K. Uh, this is, uh, there's a whole series of these. There's the Madden sport, football yep. games, and there's a, a FIFA game for soccer. NBA 2K is obviously uh, American professional basketball. And these games have been around for a long time, uh, one of the things they've been doing, uh, gosh, probably for 10 or 15 years now, is trying to make the players in these games look like the actual players. Yeah. And Kirk, you remember like that? They behave the, like the actual yeah, players, too. I mean, yeah. you try to have their skill sets, their natural yeah. behaviors, their stuff signature like that. moves, their body language. Uh, I remember back in the day when they first had these kind of games. Everything was just a sprite. You know, they, you know, maybe you had a number, you know, but that was... It was <laughs> if you had a number. Yeah, yeah. You knew it was a Gretzky because it was 99. Other than that, he was like every other player. Maybe he was faster. <laughs> but uh, the, the the desire for realism in these games and sort of the simulation aspect, a lot of them have, like, campaign modes where you're, like, the team manager and you can do trades and things like that, um, have have driven the designers to try to duplicate the, the appearance of the players down to the last detail, down to the beard stubble and everything else. Yep. Um, um, and you know, one of the side effects of this is that the you know as players change as they get older, then they look older in the game. Also, if they get tattoos, yep. they want the tattoos to show up. Sometimes it's the easiest way to pick out one player amongst many uh, on a basketball court. And many very famous NBA players have distinctive body art. Uh, Kenyon Martin's a good example, and uh, LeBron James. Everybody yep. knows about LeBron, who is now going to the Lakers. Yep, it looks go like. Lakers. I've been a Lakers fan since I was a kid. So, <laughs> so, uh, so tattoos. Um, you know, this may be counterintuitive, but. Tattoos are a work of visual art. It's a, it's a pictorial work, uh, and an original tattoo uh, should be copyrightable like anything else, don't you think? Yeah, well, it is. I mean, and we've even had arguments associated <laughs> with this. Uh, we had the facial tattoo from Mike Tyson. Uh, there was mm-hmm. some you know involvement of, about lawsuits by the tattoo artist over his his facial tattoo. I believe it was the the movie. Um, uh, the Hangover. The Hangover, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There, there was actually a lawsuit over that by the tattoo artist uh, because it's he gets the same tattoo, I think, as the joke, like when yep. he's drunk and stuff like that. <laughs> um, but yeah, so you have, you, know, you have various sort of things like that. There's no question that these tattoos are works of visual art, that the copyright, hold, you know, copyright holders in these often are the artists because they're not generated necessarily by the, the, per, the, the NBA player or the player yep. who's wearing them, which is a possibility. They actually did the art themselves, so they'd own the rights to it. Yep. But a lot of these are actually created by a tattoo artist separate from them who's not associated with the NBA. They're a tattoo artist. I think, I mean, I don't, I don't have a tattoo. Uh, my son's got a bunch. But like, like when he goes to get his, he'll go down to the, to the tattoo artist and just say, this is what I want. And he may even have a picture sometimes of, of what he wants it to look like, um, which presents a whole separate question. Are you infringing the copyright um, <laughs> by copying, you know, if he, if he comes like, you know, find something on, on, uh, on uh, Google image search yep. and goes to the tattoo artist and says, recreate this. Is it an infringement, and of and who's infringing it? <laughs> we we actually had this debate interesting when I was in law school because one of my uh, friends in law school actually had Intel inside tattooed on his uh, on his shoulder. <laughs> a trademark issue now too. <laughs> so, you know, so unless it's like true, that. unless he actually has an Intel brand <laughs> microchip, we're previewing the cyborg <laughs> we're, element. We're, we're getting there, <laughs> but yeah, but you know those kind of things is what you have with it. You you have like the you know potential that there could be a copyright infringement with it. But I think for this, what we really want to talk about right currently is. A, a truly created original work of art, yeah. which, you know, and, and I think it's worth noting, and we talk about the idea of visual arts and tattoo artists, there are tattoo artists that are incredibly skilled artists, oh, yeah. uh, no question out there, and a number of them don't just do tattoos. You're starting to see tattoo artists now, and that style of artwork become artwork generally. Mm-hmm. Um, I know, you know, we see it a lot now is actually like beer labels. A lot of them use tattoo artists to generate uh, the artwork on them. So when we're talking about this as being tattoos, you know, we really need to say, you know, it happens to be a piece of artwork which the tattoo artist has put on somebody else's body, mm-hmm. but this is unquestionably a piece of artwork, I think, you know, is what we have with it when you're talking 
talking about the a lot of these tattoo artists. Now again, some yeah. of them may be stock, it may be things yeah. that aren't out there. But what we really want to talk about here is stuff that's original creations, unquestionably original creations, and in these people who are serious artists. Yep. And the reason I want to get to those sort of elements of it is just I want to get rid of any kind of assertions of oh, this is pure commercialization, this is you know cookie yep. cutter, you know clip art. No, we really want to yeah. talk about this as being there is this stuff out there which is far beyond that and is unquestionably artwork. Yeah. So there's there's three there's three possibilities here. One is that the the person who pays for the tattoo to be done owns the copyright to the tattoo. Yep. Which, by the way, if you're getting a tattoo, think about covering the IP rights in your contract <laughs> with your tattoo artist. You can eliminate all of this. Yep. Uh, the second category is neither the artist nor the person receiving the tattoo owns it because it belongs to somebody else. We're not going to talk about that either. That's a whole separate messy problem. Uh, the situation we're going to talk about is where the tattoo artist retains the copyright to the tattoo. So they've been paid for their service in applying the tattoo, yep. but they have not... The, possibly even generating it. Yeah, but, yeah, but the, the IP rights rights remain with the tattoo artist. And it's important to remember, to discuss this in copyright previously, the rights hold to the artist until those rights are definitively yep. passed. So this is a default situation unless yep. we actually have these rights passing expressly. Yep. Yeah, you have to, I mean, the only time that would not apply is if it was a, a work made for hire, which means you have a written contract that says you get to keep the IP rights, yep. which is not the case here. So uh, so in, in this situation, uh, LeBron James, Kenyon Martin, and some of these other players, um, designers of their tattoos, and you can imagine for famous wealthy athletes, have the best of the best for tattoo artists. Uh, some of these artists register the copyrights to some of the tattoos they put on these players. So when uh, 2K Games, I think uh, 2K slash Take Two, I never keep them straight. Maybe the same company now. When they made NBA 2K, uh, they reproduced the tattoos on the players because that's what they look yep. like. Uh, well, the tattoo artist sued for copyright infringement. Um, and now they do have rights to the players' likenesses. That's an they do. That's negotiated through the players' union. So yep. being able to show LeBron James and his personality and what he looks like, he's consented to that through a union contract, and I'm sure they get compensated through some sort of royalty scheme through Probably the, through the players' union. Probably <laughs> a lot, yeah. Now, there's a whole separate topic we'll go into someday about why there's no longer an NCAA football version of this because there's no collective rights yep. bargaining organization for college athletes. Well, Take-Two, the tattoo artist sued for copyright infringement, and Take-Two argued that the use was what's called a de minimis use or a fair use. Now, we mentioned, uh, we've used the term de minimis a few times. I think we used it a lot of times in the last episode. Here it is again. Kirk, what do we mean by de minimis use? De minimis basically means minimal um, and sort of things like that, which is, you know, what we did is so minimal as to be unimportant. A lot of times it's referred to as it's the bare minimum you could have done um, to do it. So, you know, the argument here would essentially be, hey, in order to generate an image of LeBron James, I have to generate the fact that he has a tattoo of at least this general appearance because that's what he looks like. Otherwise, it's going to not look like him. Yeah, it's not going to look like him. Um, And so, you know, you you can argue that, hey, it's pixelated, it's still smaller, it's not the level of detail. I'm certain it's not the level of detail of tattoos he actually has just because the computer, even an HD computer, cannot reproduce something on a figure which is only six inches tall Mm -hmm. when the, you know, the actual image itself is probably twelve inches tall. But then, if, if you know, if it's a three D model and the 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 skin, I'm using skin, although it's also literally true here. But the the um, uh, the the external appearance of the three D model in the game, if if the detail level, if the pixel density of of the skin is high enough, you could use the three D camera to zoom in and get a pretty good look at at, yep. at the tattoo or anything else you want to look at. Um, but I don't know if the game actually, I've never played it, so I don't know if the game supports that functionality or not. But isn't there also just a general First Amendment right to say, this is what this individual actually looks like. He's given his permission to show him as he looks. Why can't we just show him? I mean, would the same rules apply if I found LeBron James in yep. Times Square someday, or I guess now in uh, you know West Hollywood, <laughs> and, and said, hey, will you take your picture? And he said, sure. And he puts his arm around me, and there's his tattoo, and we take a picture and I put it on Facebook. Yep. You know, how is that any different? I think one of the things you really bump into um, in conjunction with it in some sense is there, there's a newsworthiness argument. So obviously depicting him, you know, showing him making a basket in, you know, w- you know, winning a game or, you know, blocking a shot or whatever it might be. Um, you know, you've got a newsworthy argument that depicting him making the shot, the fact that that shows his tattoo, yeah, that's tattoo's newsworthy. On, I mean, he's, no you question. can see the tattoo yeah. in all the games he plays, right? Yep, exactly, and stuff like that. And yeah, you kind of feel like you get this thing. Now, admittedly, it's not a First Amendment argument. I think it's it, fair use in some respects is the First, is the first Amendment first, yeah. argument. That's what I was going with that yep. is there's sort of First Amendment considerations of sort of subsumed into the fair use analysis now. Yeah, and, and I think that that's what you get into is, but why is this First Amendment? And particularly when you talk about is where, where's the First Amendment here? This is a commercial use. 
there's no spe- necessarily speech here except commercial speech, and we're pretty good at saying that the, you know the First Amendment doesn't really strongly apply to commercial speech. You know, I can't go out and say my product is better, and I'll give you you know you know I'll give you a free puppy if you come down and buy my car, unless I'm actually going to. Mm-hmm. You know, those are the kind of things that you bump into. You can't say that kind of stuff as commercial as commercial speech. You've got to actually be truthful. There's requirements of commercial speech, which is an f- official distinction in the First Amendment between commercial and non-commercial speech. We're unquestionably talking about commercial speech here, and we're talking about commercial speech, we really have a lot of the First Amendment sort of getting tossed. You know, your issue with the the Facebook picture and stuff like that, well, it may be an infringement. Now you kind of get where we were last time of where's that line. Mm-hmm. Obviously, this is, no, they're reproducing this. And you have to presume in conjunction with this, these tattoo artists probably get people who want these tattoos on it. Uh, they may very well have agreements that say they won't reproduce these tattoos. They'll get the copyright. They prohibit the reproduction of these tattoos on other people. Or they may have the right to produce these on other people. You can definitely see that there's a commercial interest they have in conjunction with this piece of copyright where the reproduction of this in a video game does arguably infringe that. In a way that a TV broadcast does not. Yeah. The TV broadcast is just redisplaying actual events as they take place, you know, in real time or, or in a recording. Yep. And in a TV broadcast, there's no – there's really no ability to, to, to make – at least not right now – to force the TV channel to focus in and make the tattoo any more than a de minimis part of the broadcast. Yep. You're watching a basketball game. But in a video game, it's a little different because you as the player have more control. It's kind of like our Minecraft episode. You kind of control the placement of the camera and what you see and what the zoom level are and what – what's in the frame, you have a little bit more artistic input into what's going on in the game. And I wonder if that's enough to change this calculus. I I think you have that. The other other piece I think you also bump into in conjunction with it is, quite frankly, the argument that, and I said it earlier, maybe they don't show the entire tattoo or it can't be fully pixelated. Mm -hmm. Then arguably the tattoo they create is a derivative work. Because now they're clearly basing it upon the original. And those tattoo artists obviously want to prohibit derivative works. People trying to copy but not copy their their tattoo. Um, you know, you get into where is the, again, where is that line is to far enough away. It's not necessarily a direct derivative work, but it is clearly derived from sort of the original. That could be it. Because, like, on the TV broadcast, you're not making a copy of the image, really. Yeah. You're just sort of, like I said, displaying the events. But in a video game, you have to put, you have to pixelate have to the pixelate art and put it in there. You're making a copy. You're making a copy of the artwork, um, you know, so we have with it. Again, to the extent that I can reproduce it in the medium, but again, you could argue that's a derivative work if it's not the exact work. But it would seem to be an intent to copy. I mean, you have an intent to copy this kind mm-hmm. of thing. And that's – I think that the real thing you get into with video games is the fact that you're talking about not – in some sense, not a live event, not a news yeah. really person. I mean, it's very hard to say that videotaping LeBron James at a video game – or at a, at a basketball tournament is somehow going to involve an infringement of his tattoo just because you can't avoid it. Yeah. You know? And I think that's the biggest thing you sort of get into there is, you know, if I want to videotape LeBron James and I happen to catch his tattoo, I can't avoid it. That's the nature of what it is. Yeah, do we have to blur those out now and <laughs> Yeah, you know, and and at the same time, you can't necessarily, because of that, you really sort of get into the thing of just says, hey, why would anybody think this is an infringement? Why would these people have it? Because if you look at it and say that's an infringement, you almost can't have a tattoo. So this this case um, is in its infancy, I think. It's uh, the, it came up in the copyright reporter because uh, there was a summary judgment motion, and uh, summary judgment. Uh, Kirk will not be at all surprised to hear that they moved for uh, the uh, uh, the defendant moved for summary judgment on grounds that it's a fair use. Kirk, how many times are you going to win summary judgment on a fair use argument? You're not. Never. <laughs> Pretty <laughs> much never. Yeah. So uh, fair use is very fact specific, and, and for those of you who don't know what summary judgment is, it's basically an argument that even taking all the facts that the plaintiff has alleged exactly as they've alleged them, assuming all that's true, we still win as a matter of law. And I can see why Take-Two would have wanted to do this, because if they win, and now got a court decision saying that reproducing a tattoo in a video game as a matter of law, regardless of the facts, yeah. uh, is, is okay, which obviously was not what the court yeah. was going to do. And the court's do. not going to go there. And I think that's the issue, is it's, you know, you, you, you t- it's going to be fact-specific as to what is the reproduction of the video yeah. game, why is it done, what are the other licenses in place. It's not a summary judgment question. Summary judgment is one of those things that a lot of people have trouble with sort of that aren't lawyers because the concept behind summary judgment as Ben said and I think it's a a very valuable point out is basically saying if everything the, the plaintiff or defendant says is correct and everything the other side says is wrong the other side still wins yeah 
And that's the sort of key to it. So, you know, if everything the plaintiff says is right, everything the defendant says is wrong, the defendant still yeah. wins. That's actually almost more like a motion to dismiss on the pleadings. But with summary judgment, you've usually got at least some facts developed. And you're saying, look, we, we maybe don't agree on all the facts, but all the facts we do agree on show that we, we yeah. win here. So this is the, the outcome basically is a foregone conclusion. Yeah, yeah. there's um, nothing for a jury to decide, basically, yeah. because we don't dispute any facts that will affect the outcome of the case. You yeah, know? what we really have is basically saying, okay, this is the facts, you know, this is the facts that actually occurred. Here's you know what yep. what the defendant did, what the defendant did. What we don't know is, and, and to use the example is, we know what speed the car was going, but we don't know what speed limit the road was at. Yeah. Because we have a question as to what that is. Well, that's a legal question. What is the you know what is the speed limit on the road? The the court can determine what is the speed limit on the road at the time the person was speeding, and then the answer is you know is it larger or smaller than what they were going? Yep. That answers the question. Yeah. And so for fair use is so fact specific. It requires a lot of uh, uh, evidence about um, you know whether there's been a uh, you know dilution of of the market market for the goods and all the fair use factors we talked about on the show before. So uh, there's no surprise there that the court was not interested in in fair use. That's almost always going to go to a jury. So that's not really a winner. Uh, But the case, uh, the case got us thinking about uh, body modification in general and what kind of issues this could present. And the first one I thought of was VERA, <laughs> the Visual Artist Rights Act. Act that we talked about with the Five Points of Graffiti uh, development um, a, a couple episodes ago. Right on my side, so last night we watched... Um, Oh, Now You See Me? Have you seen this okay. movie? Yep. It's got like Woody Harrelson, uh, Jesse Eisenberg, um, Isla Fisher, and Morgan Freeman, I think, is in it. And basically, it's about four magicians, and it's a crime heist movie. And it's also, I'm, I don't do magic, but I'm sure if I did, I would also find it preposterous and unrealistic. <laughs> um, it's actually a pretty a pretty fun little movie, but the the the, uh, the denouement takes place at five points, yeah. which is now gone. So <laughs> like, I was watching, I was like, hey, we just talked about that. It was kind of a, a random little thing. Um, but uh, you may recall VERA, the Visual Artist Rights Act, is uh, something that recognizes moral rights, which are mostly a European concept that we've begrudgingly acknowledged uh, by, by matter of treaty. Uh, and these moral rights are inalienable. The artist cannot uh, lose them. And they include a couple of things. One is the right of attribution, yep. which isn't really relevant here. The second is the right of integrity, yep. which only applies if your work has reached sufficient uh, renown or stature. Yeah, but it does have to be somewhat public work as well. I mean, yeah. it's the we talked about that a little bit in conjunction with it. But yeah, sufficient renown. And the right of integrity means that the original cannot be destroyed. And if it is, you can get damages. Yep. So... LeBron's tattoo is the original. <laughs> yeah, it's the original, and it's pretty well known. It's pretty public. Um, I don't know if it's say if it's renowned or not, but I mean, if there was ever a ta- or Mike Tyson's tattoo, yep. you know, same kind of thing. So if these if these artists own this. Um, what if LeBron gets tired of his tattoo and wants it removed? Oh, geez. Now we got an interesting question, don't him? we? Because arguably his tattoo artist has the right to keep it, in te- to keep it you know, integ- integral. And if it's willfully destroyed to collect damages. Yeah. Um, the other thing about it is is that you basically have to give them the permission to take it, which I'm not sure how you'd how necessarily would you do that, do that um, or to maintain it. So, yeah, there, I think you had a really interesting question you know, as to what it is. How exactly would you deal with that issue? Now, I have the feeling that's never going to actually arise. No. One reason is because I think arguably you could say that any tattoo is arguably a copy. It's not actually an original. You know, the tattoo artist is going to draw it, and then he's going to copy it and duplicate it in conjunction with the person's art. Yep. Arguably, the original is the piece of artwork they originally generated that they're working from. Now, as far as I know, tattoo artists, I don't believe, actually originally sketch on using tattoo inks. I would hope people not. On, they, Although, I guess if you're good enough, you probably could. They're probably good enough they could, but I think they actually do sketch it out originally to make sure that it's going to fit. They want the sizing, all the colors are right, yep. everything like that. So this it's is, unlikely this would actually be considered truly the original. On the off chance that this this hypothetical did come up, you've got to imagine that our, our nation's uh, life, liberty, property, you know, the the ability to control the use of, of your own your own body yeah. would, would win out. And they would say, no, no, no. It's un- if you try to enforce this, I think they would say well, it's an unconstitutional <laughs> exercise. And, and well, I'm not you know, entitled to you know. Have, be damned. Uh, yeah, I'm not sure his tattoo artist is entitled to LeBron James' arm. Yeah. No. No, the interesting thing though, they just raised a thing. They actually heard on the radio they were interviewing one of the country artists and they was asked him what was the weirdest thing he ever signed and he was going through like weird things that they signed and one of them he said is he had a guy sign his arm because they were amputating his arm in a week <laughs> and so I was like this on the radio again I have no idea if this is true this is just the statement that was made on the radio and I'm like okay this made me think of that is you know <laughs> did you get him to sign your arm so you could keep the signature is that the idea you know <laughs> well people have tried to force this issue so uh, back in the 90s uh, the encryption algorithms for uh, for RSA encryption uh, it was unlawful to export them out of the United States at the time we had something called the international traffic and arms regulations which prohibited the export of basically weapons of mass destruction chemical weapons yeah. by 
biological weapons, other military munitions. Uh, the it also rule- includes a lot of cyber weapons, too. Yes. It's an important thing to keep in mind here. Uh, at the time, uh, if encryption software used more than 40 bits, it was classified as a munition in the same category <laughs> as chemical and biological weapons. So, again, this is the early 90s, and you have to bear in mind that even, even by today's standards, the government has you know, a tenuous grasp on what software is and is not. Uh, so you can imagine what it was like in 1992. And keep in mind, this is basically pre-internet. Yes, effectively. So, I mean, people in the know, however, said this is absurd and ridiculous. And uh, and, and to illustrate it, a number of people wrote an implementation in Perl of of the encryption algorithm. And Perl is a very compact, dense textual processing language where you could actually write a complete encryption algorithm in a line or two of code. So some people did this and then had the algorithm – Tattooed under their forearms <laughs> or their or their you know their chest or something, uh, and then their their thought was you know it's also illegal to have these weapons in public. So just by going outside, you know, it doesn't have to be a tattoo. Wear a t-shirt. You know, yeah. um, are, are they breaking the law? And then you know, is it illegal for them to leave the country because they're <laughs> exporting the <laughs> algorithm? Or uh, and and you can create a real mess by this. So uh, what if you were to um, you know, enter the country illegally, yeah. okay, then get the tattoo here. <laughs> now you're required to be deported, but you can't be made to leave. <laughs> yeah, because if it's doing so, it would export a weapon. Yeah, that's... So uh, yeah. We, never, we never got an answer to this because the laws were found unconstitutional a couple of years later. It never got to that point. But Kirk, Kirk and I came up with, there's, there's plenty of patented medical technology that yep. people use now. We have pacemakers, insulin pumps, uh, prosthetics, contraceptive devices, orthopedic devices, uh, cochlear implants. A lot of these things are covered by patents. Patent controls. And patents are geographic, like all IP rights. So you could have a patent on it here or not somewhere else yep. or vice versa. So, you know, you can imagine a situation where, um, you know, there's a, there's a patent here on a cochlear implant, but not in India. And to get it cheaper, you go to India and have it, you know, put in there. Can you come back into the country now? Yeah, because arguably you can't import yeah. patented technology. Can, can, can your head be impounded by customs? Yes. <laughs> there, is, there is some exceptions associated with personal use, just to point yep. that out in conjunction with this. But where you really get interesting in conjunction with this is some of the gray market goods. So we've actually bumped into the questions of, hey, you know, if you're going to take textbooks which are sold in Europe and those are imported into the United States under copyright, is that an infringement or, or not? Because they're legitimately purchased in Europe. They're, they're sold. They're actual copies of the book. Now they're imported, but they're imported because it's cheaper to buy them in Europe and bring them over. Carrots have said that's okay. Okay. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're entitled to that. That's what sometimes referred to as gray market goods. Um, but, you know, the courts have explicitly stated you are allowed to do that. That is perfectly acceptable. Um, it's not a trademark infringement. It's not a copyright infringement. They haven't had the patent infringement question yet. Um, one presumes they're probably going to fall down on the same line. But where it's particularly interesting, and I think this is where you could bump into it, is something like medical devices. And just so you guys know, it's actually statutorily you cannot patent essentially a medical procedure in Europe. Um, you can in the United States. There's a difference in law having to do with there. And so, like, the idea is if I patented the method of installing a pump, for example. Mm-hmm. But let's assume that that method of installation results in it being noticeably positioned differently so that you could actually tell whether or not the method was performed in the course of doing it. In Europe, that's unpatentable. In the United States, it can be patentable. So if you bumped into the fact that in the United States, somebody would charge a premium in order to do that because they have to pay the patented licenses fees. Somebody going to Europe, getting the procedure done, now can they bring back into the United States because they clearly have essentially gone ab- abroad in order to purposely avoid the patent. And in patent law, there's been a, at least cases in the past that have said you can't do that. You cannot basically sort of dodge the patent law by carrying out everything but the last stage in the United States. Mm-hmm. So the example of like one of the ones where it was is um, I'm not. I'm going to manufacture the device. So the patent is in the United States on a device. I'm not going to import the device. I'm going to import the device in pieces. And so therefore, the device is not assembled, and therefore it will then be assembled in the United States. But the assembly is what actually creates the infringing device, and that's done by the end person, so nobody can catch it. So my, my next thought was maybe the exhaustion doctrine could deal with this. Exhaustion is similar to first sale and copyright where once you sell the patented object, whatever it is, your sort of right to the exclusive use of that one object is extinguished. Yep. 
the problem is, I don't know how this works with exhaustion. I'll refer to you on that. In first sale, it has to be a lawful sale of the copyrighted item. So, you know, that's why we never buy software, yep. but you can buy a book. If you have a lawful sale of a book, you can dispose of that one physical book however you want. Patents have the similar concept with exhaustion. But if I go to India and I buy one that's not patented from somebody who's not the patentee, yeah. does it still work that way? Because we're not talking about a book here where, like, it's a photocopy or something like that. This is something which could be built. Yeah. You know, it can be built by a second person where that person's building of it's the infringement, even though it's the identical device. You know, I mean, the device could be manufactured in India, you know, and, and then sold to the United States. I could easily enough have one that's built that isn't licensed. Um, you know, it's an excess good. And we, we bump into these kind of things in IP. You bump into this sort of, you know, back of the factory type of questions of infringing mm-hmm. stuff. We don't have a licensed good. This is literally a never licensed to begin with. And so when you bump into the idea of exhaustion and say, well, yeah, exhaustion covers you because you bought a licensed version, except you didn't buy a licensed version. You didn't buy the patented good. The patentee in this case has never received any money from this device. That's the whole reason you can't import it is because of the fact that basically there's there's this mm-hmm. prohibition that says you can't manufacture them in China, which is completely a non-infringing activity to manufacture in China yeah. pursuant to a U.S. patent. But you can't import it in the United States. We should probably say what the patent rights are. So if you have a patent, you have the exclusive right to make something, Yep. Uh, whatever's patented, exclusive right to sell it. And again, this is all here, wherever yep. you have the patent rights. So in the U.S. and its territories. So make, sell, uh, use. Uh, use, or import. Import or, or export. Or import or export are the, are the four big ones. So, so if somebody's manufacturing an infringing object that would infringe here, but they're manufacturing it in China, China where it's not patented, and selling it in the UK where it's not patented, all fine, right? Yeah, it's all fine because in the United States it's not being made, used, or sold here. Yeah, uh, Canada also fine. Yep. But what if I buy it in Canada? where it's lawful to produce it and bring it in here. Now I'm importing. Now you're importing it, you bump into the importing. That's uh, technically the law says make user sell and most of the time the the, law, the courts have interpreted import or export as sort of yep. being the fourth level of that. Now arguably what it catches it is the use piece if you think yep. about it is it's because it's make user sell the uh, the patented device. Yes, I made it. I sold it legitimately in Canada, but now I'm using it in the United States and that's the infringing activity. So if I have a pacemaker that's patented here but not in Canada, <laughs> And I go to Canada and I get it installed and come down here. Do I have to turn it off? (laughs) (laughs) But these these are the kind of problems you bump into. And again, for the most part, the law has sort of given out that there's an individual exception. But you start looking at it and saying, not necessarily for everything, you know, as to what it is. And now we start getting into some really sort of complicated things. And we joked about it repeatedly. This is the cyborg episode. Let's be realistic here. We're talking about, you know, a lot of these devices. Effectively, humans are the precursors of cyborgs right now. I think the difference we have is most people see cyborgs as necessarily being voluntary modifications, Mm -hmm. whereas these are, you know, modifications that require you to live. You know, I mean, that kind of thing. For medical purposes, not for some sort of enhanced, you know, performance or strength or something like that. But we obviously make a distinction between the idea of, you know, medical procedures which are necessary and medical procedures which are cosmetic. And we have, I was going to say, we have those now. I mean, you can get, um, um, you know, uh, breast augmentation. Yep. Um, there's all kinds of uh, cosmetic procedures we have for non-medical reasons. You know, w- w- do, do the rules work differently where you say you didn't have to have this done? Yep. And that's, I think that's where we want to go. And that's where the, the next thing with this is now we're saying, okay, you know, somebody who's got a pacemaker, yeah, we can't really force you to turn it off. Yeah. We kind of look at that as an individual exception. As a public policy matter, yep. we would expect, you know, the government to be like, all right, well, no, obviously that, that's something different. But now we have the idea that basically says, hey, this is a patented procedure in the United States to augment your eyebrows and to make them permanently silver. Um, You can't, you know, if you want it done in the United States, you have to go to our clinic, which is expensive because it's patented and only we do it. But the technology to know how to do it is known how to do it. We can do it in in Canada. Some doctor performs it in Canada. So there is no underlying license. And again, when we bump into these kind of things like exhaustion, we talk about buying patented drugs, you know, outside. Mm -hmm. Those are usually sold by the actual drug manufacturer. They're legitimate, you know, sort of that are out there. There's not an unlicensed first use. Now there is. And anybody who's sort of, you know, followed some of the questions of what drugs are you actually getting when you get into Canada and Mexico and some of those other countries, there are some questions as to whether they're licensed. But we need to at least assume that the reason the law falls the way it is is because they are ultimately originally manufactured by the manufacturer. Now we have a procedure which is performed without any license whatsoever. Now that person wants to return to the United States. It, it looks like we have this problem. Yeah. I mean, how, how else do you enforce this patent? LASIK was patented, wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, yeah. so I mean, the same thing. I mean, why couldn't I have my LASIK performed in India yeah. and then come back? Now, probably because you wouldn't want to. But the, <laughs> I, mean, I mean, as a legal matter. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, but I think that's the thing is when you talk about these ideas, this being something which is, you know, this, it's not 
something which is necessary to survive. It's not something which is out there. This is where you did a purely cosmetic procedure and you did it because it's less expensive. Especially recognizing U.S. insurance oftentimes doesn't cover cosmetic mm-hmm. procedures and so now price is more important. How else do you enforce this patent? If I can't enforce the patent on this medical device in the United States by import or export, I basically have no rights. Everybody can yeah. go outside the country, get it, and bring it back in. As, as a threshold matter, there's a, there's a detectability problem, right? If I, if I, you know, if you go up to Canada and have some procedure performed that would be patented and cost you more here and come back, you know, I mean, I'm sure you've been in out of the country before. The level of scrutiny you get when you go through customs at the airport or crossing, you know, the Canadian border <laughs> is is not all that exact. You know, I haven't left Dep- the country in a couple on, years. Depending on who you are and what you look like. Yeah, yeah. Um, well, that's a whole separate <laughs> issue. Uh, you know, but I've flown into to several uh, international airports. Even flying into Mexico, I mean, y- y- they don't look that hard. You know, when you're just an individual coming through. Now, um, and I, I've flown many times internationally uh, post 9/11, and, and even then, it's it's not not that hard of a look. They kind of scan you, but but you know, but they also scan you. So yeah. you know, if they if they find stuff like my wife's got a a, a steel implant in uh, in her shin from a tumor she had when she was in high school. So that always dings the metal detectors and always shows up and she always has to explain I've got a metal, you know, bar in my leg. You know, and then this water go cuz okay, fine. What, what are you going to do? Yeah. But you know, what what if that metal bar had been installed using a procedure that's patented here but but not in Canada? Um, you know, I, I think just as a, as a basic detection matter, how how, how are they going to know? How's yeah. how's Homeland Security going to know whether that should be there or not? Well, admittedly, it's not Homeland Security; it's the Customs Service. The Customs Service, get into I guess. In the course of doing this, but yeah, there's always the question of how do you actually detect it. But at the same time, if you're the patentee, I can detect that the person's performing these procedures. Yeah, I can. And that's who you want to go after. Yeah, the the old trick and the way I can think of the way you go after it, and I mean, you should be familiar with this from Iowa, the, the old joke with the uh, fireworks stands that were right on the corner of mm-hmm. border of. Missouri and Iowa, what they used to do is the cops would sit and they'd watch the cars and record the license plate numbers of the cars that drove um, or that were um, parked in the parking lots in Missouri uh, because they could see the mm-hmm. the parking lot while they were still in Iowa or they'd, go, they'd cross over and, and see it there. And they would then go to Iowa and when one of those license plates was in Iowa, mm-hmm. they would essentially pull it over for speeding um, to justify searching the car and lo and behold, they have illegal oh, fireworks. Hey. Now, I, I'll tell you this. I, um, when, I, when I was a young man in Iowa, I, I did have some fireworks at one point that I believe were unlawful under Iowa law. Yeah, they are lawful under Iowa law now, but they yeah. originally were not until about two years ago. But uh, I, I, so I, we were driving to a concert, and uh, when, you're, when you're driving to a concert, uh, the cops pull everybody over. I was going like 68 and a 65 when I got pulled over. Uh, and the cop checked the car, and he found them. Yeah. And, uh, and I'd forgotten they were even there. And, uh, and he kind of said, what are these? I said, I don't know. I, you know my, my cousin got them for me a couple of years back. They've been sitting here, um, which was true. Um, and uh, he did not issue me a ticket or anything. Mm-hmm. I said, isn't that illegal to have? And he said, no, they're legal to buy. They're legal to sell. They're legal to use. They're not illegal to have. We can't under the interstate. Con- he didn't say this, but yeah. I later found out interstate commerce. They have to be able to truck them across the state. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah, because they're lawful in, in Minnesota. They're lawful in Missouri. So you can have them. You just can't buy them, sell them, or use them, uh-huh. which I thought was really strange. So, but I think the issue you could get into is it's the they knew the person had bought them. Yes. So that's the yes, well, who's almost certainly going yeah. to drive back to Iowa and fire them <laughs> off. Uh, but yeah, there's there's some interesting stuff like that. So yeah, I really think when you get into this, we, we have a practical enforcement problem. But at the same time, we can find a target, which is as a mm-hmm. practical enforcement. So again, let's assume that you know this this procedure that permanently turns your eyebrows metallic eyebrows metallic silver can be performed, you know, in, in Canada. Well, Canada knows this. Now they start advertising in the United States mm-hmm. and say, hey, come to Canada, we can perform this procedure, it's half the price. Can I stop the advertising? Well, that's not an infringement. You know, that's not a patent infringement. Now, I may have a trademark infringement. I may have something along those lines. But you're looking at this thing and going, how on earth do I stop these guys? The only way I can stop them is to say you can't import it. Mm-hmm. How do I stop you from importing it? And, and now we're looking at it and saying we have a major patent problem at this point in time. And this, I don't think this has been addressed at all yet. And I think part of it's because we just don't have that much for these procedures. But we're, we want to get there. And that's the idea is we're talking about now the, the science fiction staple. We've all role-played games where mm-hmm. it's the, yep, I don't have a left arm. I have a cybernetic left arm. Not because of the fact that it was shot off, but because I wanted to have one that's stronger. Um, you know, those kind of things as to what it is. We're really talking about voluntary procedures. We're talking about all this kind of stuff sort of with it. Particularly now voluntary it's more common. procedures. Yeah, now yeah. it's more common as well. And I think that's 
that's the other thing is when you say there's only so many people who need a prosthetic arm because they've lost one. That's yeah. a relatively small percentage of the population. It may be just a, a law of small numbers thing where the number of people who you know who need these medical devices is relatively small. If it's a, if it's large, then the the overhead for the device is less and it's cheaper. I mean, pacemakers, for example. Yep. I mean, how many how many people cannot get their pacemakers? I mean, if you need one, you've got one. Yeah. Uh, insulin pumps are kind of getting to be the same way. Uh, but I think also the thing with it is, is like if you need a pacemaker, you're going to get it at whatever hospital you're at yeah. at the point in time that you have it. Whereas, again, we're talking about the voluntary procedures. These are things that you can purposely shop around for. Yeah. Um, or contraceptive devices is another yep. one. That one's uh, more controversial because there's you know religious elements that play into uh, the policies for who will install these but who won't. Uh, but I mean, you can imagine a situation where somebody who lives in a, a very um, uh, you know socially conservative part of the country, uh, you know probably the South, um, can't get what they want done, and yep. so they go over to Mexico and get it there, cheaper. Yeah, you know. Uh, so these things can happen. I, I think, and I think uh, you know, your your hunch is right that the number of people who would want to voluntarily have these kind of implants done at this point is pretty small. I mean, there was sort of that uh, um, comment in Star Trek: The Next Generation where uh, you know they're talking about uh, you know the integrity of the person and whatnot, and Jordy, you know, the blind navigator yeah. uh, who has the the glasses that let him see better than anybody else does, says, you know, even though I have better vision than any of you, none of you are poking your eyes out and getting visors to put on, right? Yeah. Because you just value the integrity of your body too much. Yeah, and I think that that's a, there's a, there's a lot to be said for that of sort of the would we ever really go to the true voluntary cyborg type of technology? And I think the answer to it is, is we would to the extent that it's an enhancement that doesn't cost us anything. Yeah. So, but when you talk about the idea of what I have, you know, an arm replaced with a purely cybernetic arm, I think we, a lot of people look at it and go, no, I wouldn't necessarily go that route. Would I have, you know, something implanted under my skin in my hand, which increases my strength by double? Yeah, I probably would do that just yeah, because maybe. it's, you know, I can always take it out. Yeah. You know, those kind of things. And I think that you ultimately bump into always those kind of questions is there's always the people who look at this and say, I, I always want to be able to take it out. I don't want something which is necessarily permanent. Now we are getting there. You know, you think about things like Botox. I mean, Botox, once injected, cannot be reversed. Yeah. Um, now, obviously, it will wear out eventually, you know, and stuff like that. But, you know, we've got to wonder where does the line sort of for vanity go? Um, and then you start getting into some sort of really interesting questions. And I think this is the thing where we really get into when we talk about cybernetic implants. The realm of science fiction, cybernetic implants are not necessarily just for vanity. They yeah. are because of the fact that, hey, I have a cybernetic arm because it's 10 times as strong or because it has a gun mounted in it. Yeah. Um, it know. has a functional element besides, you know, um, you know, like a, a Botox, for example, yep. is purely for vanity. It's because you vanity. want to look better. And, yeah. and no judgment on the on our use of the word vanity. I mean, tattoos are for vanity too, for yep. the most part. And that, that's fine. There's nothing wrong with vanity. Yeah, yeah. And it's, wrong with it. the reason we're talking about it with it is because there's there's an element of patenting which has to do with functionality yeah. and utility. And so when we're talking about something which is a pure vanity, you kind of bump into the potential of is it functional, you know, as to what it is. Now, even my eyebrow example, the, the methodology is functional. We're talking yeah. about the procedure being functional. But the end product, that may be the reason why it's it's patented the way it's patented is because the end product isn't actually functional. Um, but now we're talking about something which clearly, truly is functional. You know, I mean, I have arms which are now substantially stronger than they would be, um, you know, if it's natural human strength. You know, well beyond what any human could naturally do. Isn't this basically the Wolverine situation? Like he had <laughs> the Adam I was getting, I was getting into Wolverine, and actually, that's I, I think the, the the Wolverine's a great example because it's forced on him, and it's forced on him because of the fact that he has this amazing regenerative ability. Mm-hmm. It's an horrible. I mean, it's sort of in the in at least the comic book thing. It's essentially a horrible modification. He hates it. Yeah. Um, you know, and it poisons him eventually. Yeah. He's so it poisons him, but it also it's you know as he says it's painful. You know, stuff like that. But it makes him eventually invincible. Mm-hmm. Um, and and how do you deal with this? You know, the idea of what is this person? Now, admittedly, he didn't do it voluntarily. It was forced upon him. But you say somebody did this voluntarily. You know, they actually did something like this. Maybe quasi voluntarily. They did it while they were in the military because it made them a better soldier. But now. Mm-hmm. They're not a soldier anymore. They've retired from the military. It makes you wonder if the removability aspect is is where this would turn as a policy matter. So you got a category of things that are that are medically necessary, which yep. which would seem to clearly fall into one category. Uh, things that are are, are perhaps uh, medically convenient or functionally convenient, but but that are, are not necessary, and you would do voluntarily. And is that a different category from things that have no function beyond our, our personal vanity? Yeah, and and I think you kind of look at it and say, I don't think there really is a distinction there. I think you've got. I don't a 
vanity, yeah. and I think the idea that it has some functionality. I think vanity is a function of itself. It's a function of itself, but from a purposes of an, a patent infringement question, we bump into the vanity versus functionality may present a question as to whether or not it's a patent infringement and how the patents are drafted and stuff like that. Um, again, when we talk about the idea of like an arm with increased strength, that can be patented as the arm, which arguably mm-hmm. then my use of it could be the infringement you know, in the United States. Whereas when you look at something like a procedure which is purely an aesthetic change, the procedure being performed may be the patent infringement, not the yep. end device. And so now we have it where the patent infringement is outside the country versus the patent infringement at least being clearly inside the country. You know, yep. If I use my arm to lift something, I have now committed the infringement. This also gets into damages. So, so let's suppose it is an infringement. I go have some device implanted that improves my vision or something like that. Come back into the country and and somehow somebody finds out about it and they say, well, you you know, we have the right to prevent importation. Um, you know, all, all they need is a license. Yeah, you know? I can just call the company up and take a license to it, and I'm done. And and by law, the license must be a reasonable license. Um, right. And they can just look at it and say, well, it would have cost you ten thousand dollars to buy it from us. You got it for seven in India, so you know you you owe us the difference or yeah. wherever it was. The problem with it is, is that you know they don't necessarily have to be reasonable. I mean, they could basically say we're entitled to whatever we lost out of it, which is the five thousand yep. dollars we'd make from the procedure. Now we're back to the jury uh, question, though: is yeah. is what's what is a reasonable royalty for this, and what what should they have yeah. been? Probably paid? you're entitled to lost profits potentially too. Yeah. I mean, that's the thing is it can be you know sort of what the what the issues of it are. Um, but I think Jordy also is a good example to sort of get on here, which is Jordy has two. He has the implant, which allows him to connect to his visor, mm-hmm. but his visor himself could actually be removed. Yeah. Um, and so there you bump into the idea that says, hey, he goes, he gets the implants for this, which allow him to connect to a visor. He buys the visor in Canada because that's a better quality visor and it's cheaper. Can he bring the visor into the United States? He can take it off and replace it with an American-made visor. How do you deal with that? You know, now we've got the issue of the implant. Well, he did the implant in order to get the benefit of the other piece, but now he can get one that would restore normal vision. And this kind of goes back a a little bit to the episode we did uh, several episodes ago about AI. You know, the the next step from, from, you know, mostly person and and partially cyborg is mostly cyborg and partially person. (laughs) And then then the full-on AI, where where everything you are is potentially intellectual property. And that's where I think we bumped into, and I think the thing to think about is now, okay, the AI is patented. Can the AI not cross borders? Now it's sent and it's entitled to rights. But how do you enforce that how on the internet? How do you do with this? You know. Yeah, I mean, if if the AI say the patent involves in how it communicates and learns. Yeah. Uh, through through adaptive learning, well, it's going to do that on Twitter. Yep. Well, Twitter's international, so. I, I, well, how do you and stop these that? are actually these are the patent questions that get asked. If you go out to like big CLEs, like national CLEs, in conjunction with it, one of the big things that you bump into is where does the infringement occur? But you also want to do where does the invention occur? Because mm-hmm. another thing to keep in mind is a lot of patent laws. When you think about this, and again, using the example, we start this with some concepts of weapon systems. In the United States, there is actually classifications for certain kinds of patents which cannot be public at all. Mm-hmm. Um, you can get the patent, you can get it patented, but the patent application is maintained in secret. And this is done on weapon systems. Um, one I happen to know of just because I remember seeing it displayed on it was the guidance system for U.S. torpedoes in World War II. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was subject to what's called a secrecy order. And basically that means that it's patented, but the patent is completely secret. Wasn't that invented by a Hollywood actress? Um, I can't remember or what Was that it, just the, the radar? No, that was radar, I there, think. Yeah, there was some... the, this was invented by an inventor who has a huge number of patents and was involved in a bunch of different things. Um, but he had like a commercial establishment that had nothing to do with submarine targeting, torpedo targeting, but he developed how to do it. Um, but the thing that you sort of get into is what if you now have a weapon system which is implantable and is now subject to a secrecy order where like it's treason to export it? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how do you deal with this? You know, because again, you may not necessarily be able to separate it. We've got a second law, but we've also got potential patent infringement of bringing it back into the country. And I think, so I'm going to harken back to one more episode, our last episode, where we talked about how there are sometimes uh, cultural differences between... Uh, That's two episodes ago. Or two episodes ago, I guess. Um, um, between uh, IP rights, which are generally a Western construct, and, and other non-Western cultures that don't conceptualize rights in the same way. Sometimes they don't really work out together. Um, is, is, is there an argument... And, and, and in connection with that, we talked about how a lot of these IP rights we have developed in response to changes in technology. You didn't need copyrights until you had a printing press. All of a sudden, you could mass produce works of writing, and then it mattered who had the right to copy it and who didn't. Before that, it was just you know monks in a chapel somewhere that would take six months to make one copy. Um, and, and they so, copied all of one book. Yeah, all copied the same book. Um, so, so you didn't really need uh, a copyright until you had a printing press. 
And, and then we had it, and then we did. We didn't really need mechanical licenses until we had the player piano. We didn't really need to worry about broadcast rights and sound recording until we had radio and the internet. And so I think there's a reasonable argument that these IP institutions developed in response to the technological changes that altered the balance of, of whether it's money or power or, or creative uh, focus in a society, and you need a new law to deal with it. And that may be why there's just not answers to so many of these questions is because we we are at the earliest stages of this part yep. of the development, and as that comes along, we will find the legislative need to deal with it. Yeah. And we've talked about that already in conjunction with the AI with like self-driving cars and liability of self-driving cars. I mean, we are we are in an era right now where the interface between sort of, and I'm going to say this the way it is, but it's even though I think it's somewhat wrong, traditional technology and biology mm-hmm. is really starting to blur. You know, we think of traditional technology as sort of being mechanical, electrical, biology being wholly separate. We're starting to see those things blurring. We're starting to see, hey, you know, we can manufacture biological things. You know, Mm -hmm. we can integrate electromagnetic devices with biology. You know, we're starting to see this, this recognition. We're also starting to see that they're not separate, you know, that effectively the human heart can be electromagnetically modeled, you know, Mm -hmm. and potentially replaced, you know, I mean, these are really sort of, you know, interesting questions. And again, they're questions that science fiction goes into all the time. That The law is starting to recognize it needs to deal with. Now, it's dealing with them initially, I think, in the liability issues, the idea yep. of sort of some of these basic ones. IP is not as important, I don't think, for a lot of people in this, but it's going to be. Yep. Um, and particularly when we talk about this as being invention and being patent, one could argue it's almost more important. Because mm-hmm. we need to be dealing with the front end of it, which is the invention of these technologies, before we need to deal with their mass commercialization. Another question I think that does not get asked is – because what we really usually do when, with, in response to technological change is update or modify existing institutions. So you know, what, what was the last new form of IP that kind of got invented, would you say? Probably some form of software. I mean, in the way that they've yeah. sort of dealt with software and it becoming a copyright it's issue copyrighted, versus a patent right? issue. But I mean, so we've had patents since the birth of the country. We've had copyright since before that. Trademark law, I think, really probably emerged in the 19th century. Uh, yeah, I say, it's, I'm trying to think. It definitely emerged. It in roots England. go back further, but it's yeah. You know what we can what we think of now as unfair competition kind of grew out of that. But other than those three, I mean, trade secrets have been around forever. Databases are sort of new, but we don't have a lot of like new IP institutions and you wonder if we're going to reach the point where we can no longer fit. Uh, I mean, I already think software is a poor fit for both copyright and patents in some respects, and a good fit for each one in other respects. Yeah. Do you, do but you, you kind of need, need a, like, should we create a software thing, which is, a you know, between yeah. it? The example being, like, in, in a, a lot of foreign countries, they have the special um, design design rights, which are basically a, a real cross between pat, design patent in the United States and trademark, much sort of so than it is in the United States, which really design patents are its own thing. But they have these design rights, which are kind of a hybrid and not something we necessarily have exactly in the United States. Yeah, and you, and you wonder if, if we'll get to that point where you know these these things, these technologies, these uh, these, these very disruptive technologies that alter our relationship with with uh, with everything, you know, fundamentally. Um, require an entirely new way of thinking about IP and how it works. And then at some point, do, do you go back and look at these other cultures and say, what what else has been done to conceptualize uh, IP rights and IP ownership? And, and are, are there any lessons to be learned there? Yeah, and maybe do we sort of, you know, reinvestigate the question of IP? I mean, these questions have been asked. These are things that yeah. people throw around on the internet of should we have an IP law system at all and things like that. It's a tough question because there's so much um, inertia already built into the system. There's there is There is some value Value, I think, and this is just me being, you know, um, uh, pontificating a bit. I think there is some value in settled expectations and, and yes. knowing that what we've got now is how it's going to keep working. I'm, I'm going to agree with you just generally. I think it, most lawyers would say it's not as important as what the law is than that the law doesn't change. Yeah, that we know what it's going you know, to be. We know like. what it's going to be because you, if you know what it's going to be, you can work within it. Yep. Yeah, I think I think that's very true. And so, you know, it's more of as as new things come out that maybe are not a neat fit. Do you and and, and these rules? You look at how they're going to apply, and you say none of it makes a lot of sense. That those are your best opportunities to, I think, introduce a whole new yeah. uh, framework for how to analyze these. Because issues. you're either going to push it into something that it doesn't necessarily fit with, and sort of you know bend that, or you're going to have to say it's wholly new, and we're going to yep. create it. The hard part, I think, you get into with creating it, and and unfortunately, I think it's just the nature of our world right now. Because of the fact that our world is so interconnected, because of the fact that we have, you know, we have the internet globally spanning, we have news that, that, you know, carries over, we can watch TV shows from every country, we see what's going on. 
we have a problem creating totally new things, I think, mm-hmm. more so now than we ever did previously. Again, you kind of go back to like, you know, we, we talked about the last episode, sort of those, you know, the, the crazy laws that are still on the books. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, those were created easily. 200 years ago because the small community could do it and they could vote for it and they could do it and they did it for a particular reason because they wanted to stop this person from crossing the road yeah. while walking on his hands. It probably usually was one person yeah, that was annoying was one person. And, and those types of things that you, you had with it. Nowadays, you bump into the, you know, a small change in American patent law could potentially influence China. Yeah. You know, and they know we're doing it, you know, and you bump into these types of things. We become so interconnected. Do you have a problem that we've stagnated, that we really can't alter the legal systems of any country because altering them does inter- change too much expectations of what it's going to be? Everybody interdepends too much. Yeah, we interdepend well, too much. And, and you see this. We'll, we'll talk about this in a future episode. The evolution of, of how music is covered in copyright um, has changed from, you know, at the outset it wasn't covered at all, yep. and now we have this psychotic mishmash of different music. <laughs> rights that, that have kind of evolved over time in, in response to technological changes. But, I mean, uh, people badly misunderstand what is and is not protected under music copyright. And, and we see Congress dealing with it right now. You know, they kind of struck a balance in the last Copyright Act in the 70s. Now they're looking back and saying, well, that was fine then, but now we have the Internet. Now we have uh, an international, uh, you know, an intranational within the U.S. and an international in, in the world market for music. And so carving out these pre-1972 recordings being covered by state law has created a massive problem that nobody would have seen coming 20 years ago. Yeah. Well, maybe 20, 20 years ago. 30 years ago. Where the iPod was. Yeah. <laughs> but, the, the, yeah, and that's, you know, we are getting a bit philosophical here, and I think this is sort of a worth, you know, pointing it's out. It's fun. <laughs> it's fun, but I think it's also, it's worth pointing out that the laws, when we think of law right now, the laws in the United States are pretty much all 200 years old. The legal system of the United States is effectively 200 and well, about 250 years old. Um, you know, that's what we're dealing with in conjunction with this. And when you look at it and say, do we change that? There's a lot of concern of saying, do we change it? Because it's the, you know, if you make two abrupt changes, you can have issues. Mm-hmm. There is that expectation that's sort of going forward. You also bump into the, it's not the same world it was 250 years ago. We have changed. We've always changed slowly. The law always changes slowly. But has the pace of change changed? Um, and it's to the extent that it's done that, do we need to deal with it? I think the more, the, the more interesting issue, and again, for me, where you really bump into this, is the globalization. You talk mm-hmm. about the idea of saying, hey, body modification would have been done in Canada. 40 years ago, that was impossible. Like, yeah. It just wouldn't have happened. Nobody would have known about it. It was basically impossible. It just wouldn't have happened. Now we're looking at it and saying, that's a highly conceivable idea in, in, our, in our lifetimes. Yeah. You know, and so we've got to deal with it. How do we deal with it? Um, do we have faster changing technology or is it really something where it's more just, we haven't dealt with these issues for a long enough time. We have to deal with them now. And I think that may be the issue. You, you see them getting picked off kind of piecemeal by Congress. So, you know, and when the internet first came out, um, I wouldn't say first came out. Well, even that first entered the popular consciousness. I would say 94, 95-ish is probably about when you started to see people yeah, like... Yeah, I mean, yeah, probably in that kind of era, yeah. mid, mid-90s. And it was five years later before we had the Digital Millennium Copyright Act and the e-signatures act. Yep. And in the meantime, there's a big question. Can you sign things online? Is that even enforceable? And you got to think about that time. And that's when Amazon starts. And they were like, well, yeah, we'll accept your e-signature. In fact, we'll let you pay by a credit card online. That was unthinkable in the 90s. To give some stranger over a a computer network my credit card information and buy something and trust them to send it to me, that's crazy talk. (laughs) You know, and at the time, we didn't even know if those transactions would be enforceable. So when you think of innovation, those are the risks people were taking at the time. And, you know, you could I don't know if they got lucky or if they just had good lobbyists and (laughs) got it all got it all dealt with. But you see that, you see. The, uh, the mean, Children I, Online Privacy and Protection Act, the Electronics Communications Act, all these individual things kind of pop up one by one to deal with things. And then it culminates in what just happened in Europe, the GDPR, where they say, we've, we've been kind of uh, playing whack-a-mole with these legal issues. Now we're, we're going to destroy the entire machine at once with a giant bulldozer. Yeah, mm-hmm. and, and I think the problem you bump into with the, the GDPR is that nobody knows exactly what it's doing. I mean, we, we have that uncertainty. We yeah. don't know what's going to happen with the GDPR, you know. Because you can easily have an inadvertent infringement of it. You can have sort of issues come through. And there's, you know, you can come up with crazy scenarios, which just appears to cover that yep. just make no sense. That's all you can go by is what the language says. We say yeah. all the time, what's the language of the contract say when we talk about stuff? Same with legislation. Absent some sort of binding guidance from the enforcement authority, yeah. all you can go with is what the language says. Well, it's written really broadly. Yeah. So you have to assume it could cover any situation Nation. that falls within its terms. And I think when you talk about that idea of like, you know, the doing things, I remember on eBay, when, when you bought something off eBay, you sent the person in a money order. 
Yeah. Like, I mean, Western Union was making a lot of money off of eBay because that was the only trusted communication because you didn't trust a personal check. No. Or you if know, you did, you let it clear for like three weeks to yeah, make darn sure, you, you know? know, and stuff like that. And then you now you look at it, and it's like you know you have credit card transactions that are instant. I mean, I've you know I have sellers who send me stuff you know within hours of when I buy it, mm-hmm. you know, and it's there the next day. And I look back and I'm like, you know, I remember doing Western Union money transfers and like having to go and buy those oh, Western gosh, Union money to transfers to do it. And, and you know, we have these sort of changes that have occurred, and the law has not necessarily taken into account what it is. I think a good example, and one of the ones that you talk about with it, that's been an open question for years. Are internet transactions taxable? That's going to get resolved, I think, sooner yeah. rather than later. Well, I mean, we've just had them. You know, the Supreme Court has just come down and basically said, yes, yeah, there they is can. A, they can be. You know, there is it can be done. Now, it's it, it's they basically permitted it. They've not said whether or not it's going to happen. Kind of like the gambling law. We should talk about that one someday too. They basically said that certain gambling regulations are unlawful. Yeah, but that doesn't mean every state can just start gambling now. Yeah, and that's the the kind of thing that you got with it. But I think you know you, you're getting into those and looking and saying, how long have we got on online commerce? I mean, how many of us can remember the world before Amazon and eBay and you know? You know, Cyber Monday and everything else. That's the thing. I was online pretty early. I was on local BBSs in like 1992, 1993. You're the same era I am. Yeah. And even back then, like I used to buy D&D manuals off other people who were, you know, uh, online. I bought magic cards. Yeah. Yeah, you just go into the, the the buy sell trade forums and you say who's got something to sell. Oh, here's the castle guy. All right, I'll give you five bucks for it. And I mean, then but before that, you made the same kind of things at the comic book store. You know, uh, the, the same kind of. There's always boards of people buying and selling stuff. So it's it's you know, on, on on some level the behavior. You know, the transactions have been going on forever. It's just a matter of how convenient and, and fast it's yep. getting and how far removed you can be from the people who have the goods versus the people who yep. have the money. But I think you've also got the issue of it's becoming so much more common and so much more pervasive. We talked about this in the last episode. How much of this is an issue of video becoming pervasive? Yeah. I think that's one of the things we have in here is how much of this is transactions becoming, you know, next day transactions becoming pervasive. That, you know, it used to be, yeah, you could buy D&D books, but that was essentially a garage sale. Yep. eBay is not a garage sale. Yes, it is. It's the world's largest garage sale, <laughs> but it's not a garage sale. It's well, a huge functioning business. That's the only thing that's holding Amazon back from having droids, droids you know, drones, droids, I guess it's the same thing, <laughs> flying packages to your door right now as they have to stay below a certain, we'll, get, we'll do a spacecraft episode at some point to talk about you know air regulations but they have to stay below a certain altitude and when they do that you have to maintain visual line of sight when you operate them so you know until that changes amazon can't really deliver uh, to the door, but you know that's something they'd like to be able to do to find a way to make that work, to where you don't have to have visual line of sight. You can just send the robots out to drop off your stuff the same day. Yeah, yeah and the technology is definitely there, and it's it's one of these where maybe we should at some point in time too. We're talking about a bunch of future episodes here. Maybe one of those things we should at some point in time do is talk about sort of delay in law and the mm-hmm. idea of you know where have we seen technological issues previously that have resulted in delay, and what has that done? Like, have yeah. we seen technologies change? And the one I'm thinking about is the digital audio tape. Um, yeah, that got know, killed. Where, where the, basically the law killed the digital audio tape unintentionally. Yeah. Um, but because of the fact that it tried to be too anticipatory. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So sometimes there is value in waiting to see. Like you know, you remember when uh, when Napster was out and that, and the the music piracy was a big deal. There was a lot of lobbying for Congress to do something and fix this. And I don't know whether it was because they couldn't come up to a, come to agreement or they didn't understand the issue, but they did nothing basically. Uh, they you know changed some statutory penalties that didn't really change anything, but. Uh, you know, we talked before, the issue was ultimately solved by a market solution before legislative yep. action really took place. And I guess you wouldn't it say was it's really totally solved. solved by, it was really something solved by iTunes, but the reality of it is is now it's moot because now it's, it's streaming. Yeah. You know, and so you look at the idea of you know b- downloading songs as a single MP3 that you then play a lot of times on your – nobody does that's that. That's even dated now. Yeah, that's dated. And so we look at the thing and saying, you know, Napster's business model wouldn't work today because yeah. it's it's up against Spotify. I couldn't – I mean, I, I will buy songs now of, of just specific songs that I just want to have. Like the other day I bought – um, uh, what was it? They they put they they put together like an amalgamation of all like the Beatles number one yep. hits. So I, I bought that so I can have all those songs. One, one of the things I think is interesting, and I talk about my own music habits. So I went very strongly on iTunes. I have everything on iTunes. I'm going back to buying CDs. I'm buying physical discs now. And Where? When, <laughs> it's actually somewhat hard. I mean, you can get them like re, new ones get released at Walmart and Target and yeah. stuff like that, and so you can get those. A lot of times, I'm quite frankly, I'm, I'm trying to find them like through like publishing companies and stuff like that. I mean, but the the thing that I think is so interesting about it, the reason I've done this, is because I'm worried that my iPod isn't going to continue to function. 
Mm-hmm. Because I have the old connector. I have the old original iPod with the old original Yours connector. Yours is a dinosaur. Um, I mean, and it's admittedly, it's not that old of a dinosaur because my original dinosaur got stolen and I replaced it with a, a follow-up dinosaur to it. But the thing about it is, is I'm kind of hitting that point where I'm like, I think I want the music on CDs again so that whatever the next technology is, I can do it. And the reason is, is because quite frankly, just personally, I don't particularly care for streaming. It's I'm, I'm much more into the I want to control. Yeah. And I want to do it where it's like, listen, it's nice. And part of it's just because my, my, my kids listen to it. I mean, we get in the car, it's the same song every time we get into yeah. the car for six weeks. Then it's the new song for six weeks. Then it's the new song for six weeks. And so I need to be able to do that sort of just immediate control. And I don't want to be doing that on a streaming service where it's going to try to figure out how often do I want to listen to that song. Yep. Because if my kids are in the song, I do not want to listen to that song ever again. <laughs> no, that, that's exactly right. And that's, I, I'm kind of the same way. I've, I mean, I'll, I'll use Pandora and whatnot just to put on like some, some genre while I'm doing work or whatever. But most of the time, I got kids in the car, and I I had a terrible fathering moment a couple weeks ago when I had uh, what was it? I had Eleanor Rigby on. Speaking of the Beatles, <laughs> and I, I picked up my daughter from gymnastics, and she gets in the car, and she goes, "What is this?" I said, "This is Paul McCartney," and she goes, "Can you turn this off and put Fat Boy Slim on?" <laughs> I was just like, oh my gosh, hashtag father, fathering failure. Like, I've, I've got her turned around. I, no, I, I had my daughter do something similar, actually, but we actually, amusingly enough, had Ella Fitzgerald on. And now she, and she became all interested in what scat singing was. That's um, awesome. And so she actually like has gone like we've we've gotten a few CDs, like pulled some stuff off of you know the various radios and things like that. So basically, we can show her. And it's I have a couple of Fitzgerald CDs, so it was one of those things where it was easy for me to go through them and go like this is scat singing. And she thought it was really cool. She's like, you know, you can actually sing without singing any words. And we're like, yeah, you can just sing basically making noises yeah. and sort of doing this kind of thing with it. And this is this whole style. It's actually a very very important sort of a pretty American form of singing. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, they were in, the kids were interested in it for probably about two weeks, and then you know now they're back the same way. Yeah, you know. Um. I, I thought I'd turn a corner on that because uh, I, I had started to go through some songs. And like I said, I bought this Beatles anthology thing, and and Love Me Do came on, and uh, my daughter goes, "Oh, I'll go back to that," because I just get past it and figuring she wouldn't want to listen to it. And I said, "Oh, really? You want to listen to that one? Okay." So I go back and turn it on. She goes, "Yeah, this was in Minions." <laughs> I'm like, "Great, great." That's the number of you get that are on kid radio too. That's one of the things that we bump into on a regular basis. All right, well, we'll wrap this one up. Uh, so there's the music. Uh, it's time to go. If you have questions, comments, or topic ideas, you can send your thoughts to us on Twitter at LGGpod or email us at LGGpodcast at gmail.com. You can also talk to us on our Facebook page, search for Lawyer's Guide to the Galaxy, and find us there. Subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, Spotify, or wherever else you get your podcasts. If you like what you hear, please give us a review. We appreciate your reviews. It helps other people find us. You can find me on Twitter at Benjamin Siders, and Kirk is at Kirk DMN. Boy, we've thrown down a lot of topic ideas for our next yes, episode. Yes, we have. That's what it is. I think we're going to figure out what we're going to do for our next episode. It'll be a surprise for everybody who hasn't been here yet. Um, but yeah, I think we'll see what we what we come up with. There's a lot of potential topic ideas. Let's see. All right. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. Lauren, play us out. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by Lewis Rice LLC, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer. This podcast was produced and recorded at Cool Fire Studios in St. Louis, Missouri. 